Well, this morning, um, so, and I love coming in. Some people feel really free to be honest you know, with you sometimes, right? And so they come and say, my gosh, Steve, you look really tired, right? And, and this morning I am, and I have to say it's a sacrifice of praise that we have a dog because I want to praise God. He woke up at 1 and 3, p- 3 a.m. this morning, right? And I don't know if you know, but it was at 3 a.m. It was really cold, too, right? And so we love Pugin sometimes, but not really, right? Scott talked about him Tuesday night at prayer. And this morning I did not love him very much much. And uh, so I'm a little tired, but I'm going to press through. Why? Because we have a beautiful word to share this morning from Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. What we're talking about, we're going to put it in our context, but the idea of slaves and, and masters this morning. And, and this morning, we're going to dive into that again and put it into our context. But I want to begin this morning with two things. Number one, I want to remind you of why we're talking about this. Remember we said last week, and Scott looked at it too, this idea of household codes, which simply is this. In the context of the Greco-Roman world in which Paul is writing, there are codes or laws or ways to do things in the context of the home. And so Paul is writing to the Christian church, and he's, he's honestly rewriting some of these household codes, saying, Listen, because of the gospel of Jesus, because of the reality of his coming and his salvation, the way that we're doing relationships in the church, specifically in the homes, is very different than it's ever been done before. Because Jesus changes all relationships. And so the idea was, I want you to, I want to, we're going to change the way that we do it. But we said last week, part of the reason was, is because we are, as the church, to be a city on a hill. We are to be a light, a beacon of hope for the culture. And we want to do relationships in such a way that the culture looks inside the four walls and goes, man, that's really attractive and very cool. There's something peculiar about those people and how they're doing relationships in the area of equality that I find attractive and I am drawn to that. And we know they're drawn to the Jesus in that, right? They don't know that. They just think they're drawn to something cool, but they're actually drawn to the Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus and how we do relationships. And so Paul is writing that message. So he looked at wives and husbands. Two weeks ago, Scott talked about that. I encourage you to listen to that message. I listened to it this week. It was great. Second, we last week talked about the parent-child relationship. And this week, we're going to look again at the slave-master relationship and put it into our context today. But I want to second begin with this with a phrase that I think for every single parent or grandparent or aunt and uncle who was close to their niece and nephew this morning, I'm going to name a phrase this morning that I think all of us will identify with. We will go back to a moment and it will elicit an emotion. The phrase, real simple, is this. Daddy, mommy, watch me. Do you remember that? Daddy, watch me. That was the phrase for me because I'm a dad, right? Daddy, watch me. And they would say it again and again and again, right? So I'll never forget. Listen, remember that, that playground that we bought from Costco with Randall's mom's money that made us the perfect parents in the world two weeks ago, right? So we had this playground. 
in our backyard. And so when I would come home from, from work, when they're living in Orlando, Anna Catherine was three, Sarah was about, about, I don't know, about 20, she's about one and a half, or like, like 18 months, 19, 20 months, whatever it was, right? And we would come home, and so Anna Catherine could talk at the time, Sarah couldn't, and so I would walk through the door, they would always be outside, cause it's Orlando, it's warm, and so we'd always go outside, and they'd be on the playground, and I would, I would open the sliding door, they would hear me, they would see me, and they'd immediately run up, climb up, get to the, the top of the slide, and what they say, Daddy, watch me. And the captain would go first because she was the oldest and the boss, right? Daddy, watch me. And she would come sliding down. Then what would she do? You all know. She would get done, and where would she look? Right at me, right? With a big grin on her face, what was she waiting for? For me to go, that was awesome. <laughs> she would laugh, and she would run back around. And then Sarah would go, right? Because she couldn't talk. And so, so she would, then she would slide down, and she would look up at me and smile and wait for me to say, that was awesome. Again and again and again. It never got old, right? No, seriously, it was a beautiful moment because the idea was this. Our children, my children, they loved making me and Randall their primary audience. Like they, they, they lived, they lived to hear us say, well done. And here's the thing about it. They didn't do it so that I would love them, right? They already knew that I loved them with everything inside of me. They didn't do it because they didn't know if they pleased me or not. No, they they just knew that I found pleasure in every little thing that they did. And they just wanted to do it because they wanted to see my response. Because it brought joy to them to bring joy to me in the moment. I didn't love them anymore when they did it. It didn't please me anymore when they did it. I just loved them. They loved me. They wanted to do it for me because they knew that it brought great pleasure. Because everything that they did in their mind they knew brought pleasure to me. They lived in that season for an audience of one. They lived for Randall. They lived for me. It's really funny. I mean, you come to you come to one of our girls' sporting events, like Sarah's playing softball right now. She's in the round of eight for state, right, for high school. We, she was playing in Savannah this week. She gets a, she lays down the perfect bunt. I mean, she's, she lays the perfect bunt on the third baseline, squeeze play, girl comes running in and scores in a really, really tight game and she's safe at first. Her team is cheering for her. Her coaches are cheering. Do you know where she looked? Here. And I went like this. And everyone in the round, every parent knows what's about to happen. And I was like, that's my girl! And she's like this. And then she, looked, then she looked at her teammates. She wasn't wondering, is my dad pleased? Oh, my gosh. No, she just knew what would be. She knows I take great delight. She knows why I drive 10 hours in one day just to come watch a stupid softball game. Because of her. And so when we live this, when Paul begins to speak this morning, about a slave and master relationship. What I want you to hear me say is this. Paul's ultimate heartbeat is to bring slave and master in the context of the church to an understanding that no matter who they are and no matter what's going on, Jesus is the only audience that matters. That's the heartbeat. 
Jesus is the only audience. Doesn't really matter what the master thinks. Doesn't really matter what the slave is going, what's going on in his life for both of them. Their actions and all that they're doing is to be seen primarily by God, not to make God love them, not to bring pleasure so that they know God pleased. No, because they know they are loved by God and because they want to do the things that bring pleasure to him because of their love and affection for him. And so with that this morning, let's dive into Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, going to verse 9. You can follow along with on the screen. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. That's a beautiful, powerful phrase. Like, everything I just said is also true for you, right? Do not threaten them, the slaves, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So let's begin here. When we see the word slaves, we get caught, right? We get caught because the only, kind of the only uh, perspective or idea that we have around slavery is the abomination of the 17 and 1800s in the Caribbean United States of America, right? This idea of slaves who were enforced into slavery. And the idea is that that's our only picture, but that's not what we're reading about here in Ephesians chapter 6. Slavery talked about by Paul here is very different. Slavery in the day and age had nothing to do with race. Anyone of any background of any race could have been a slave, and there was actually no slave class. But instead, slaves were found in all but the highest economic and social strata. They were found everywhere. In fact, over 33%, so a large number, one out of three people living in the Greco-Roman world was considered to be a slave. Many of them were highly educated, in fact, more highly educated than their masters. They were allowed to own property. They could save their own money in time, ultimately, to buy their freedom and their release. In fact, you may have noticed, but in slavery in the Greco-Roman world ended about the age 30. You had no slaves, ultimately, who were over the age of 30 in this day and age, right? Many times people would sell themselves into slavery. This is the idea of, of bond servant or bond slavers, which is actually what we read uh, in, not in the NIV, or excuse me, in the NIV, I think, not the ESV, but this idea of bond servants, that they would end their freedom, they didn't know where they were going to find a meal or where they were going to find stability in the context of their life. So they would literally sell themselves to a family for the purpose of working for them so they would have a place to stay and a place to live, so they would have a job and work for the idea to gain stability so in time they could live on their own. And so again, what I want you to hear me say this morning is, yes, slaves in that day and age, they were told what to do and when to do it and that kind of stuff. They they didn't just have this level of freedom to do as they pleased. But ultimately, in the context of this culture, for the most part, they were treated well. They were treated as family. It was just a much different connection for us. In fact, when every single person you read today when they're talking is in the context of our world to do the greatest comparison, we don't think slavery of the U.S that was an abomination, you honestly think more employee-employer relationship of how we view things today. And the idea, just being very simple, is think about your job, those of you who are at work. Like, 
You don't have freedoms to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. You're told when you can go on vacation. You're told when you have to be at work and when you leave and when you could go to lunch. Who knows? Maybe you have bathroom breaks. I have no idea where you work. That'd be awkward, right? But but there's this whole dynamic going down that there's a level of responsibility that someone has for you. And ultimately, they tell you what you're going to be doing and when. This is the idea of what we look at here. So as we move, as we move forward this morning, I want to leave the slavery as we understand it from our American history behind and just recognize that it's something absolutely different that we're talking about here in the context of the culture of Paul's day and age and honestly what we're talking about here in the context of our life. So with that in mind, let's begin. We're just going to go verse by verse by verse this morning. And five through nine and kind of look at this. And so honestly, we're obviously we're starting here in the context of talking about slaves, a.k.a. employees. Right. So if you have ever had a job or you ever have someone that you have something that you're responsible for, that someone is over you. Right. Then you can begin this morning to attach yourself to the teaching here that Paul is giving. So in verse five, the slave is called to respect and fear and obey. Okay, that's the first thing that Paul's talking about. They're to respect and fear and obey their master in the same way they'd respect, fear, and obey Jesus. So if Jesus has changed the relationship. Hear this. Jesus has changed the relationship, but he has not changed their responsibility. So I want you to think of it again, right? Don't just don't just go into our verses here. I want you to put it in context. Paul is speaking, remember, he's speaking to the church, and he's speaking to those, one, basically one-third, maybe more than that, of the church who are actually living their life in the context of this employee relationship, in the context of slavery. So he's saying, listen, just because you've been given freedom and your master is no longer ultimately Lord over your life, and Jesus is, it doesn't mean you don't still have a responsibility in the relationship that you're in here. So he's coming and saying, right, he, has, he may have changed the relationship, but he's not changed the responsibility. He wants them, again, to be a light in darkness and how they're living as slaves with masters. How they're living will be seen by others, and that's highly important to the validity and the stability of the church in that day and age. They were to be a light in what they're doing. And so they are called to still honor and respect those they work for on earth. But now they are to do it by choice for the purpose of honoring Jesus. Before the master, before the master would have to demand respect. And if they didn't respect, he would punish them. But here Paul is saying it shouldn't have to be demanded because each slave should choose humble submission and respect. Here's respect would not have to be demanded, but instead would be simply humbly chosen by those who are working for someone else. As those who work for others or do work for others, whether in a paid setting or a volunteer setting, Paul is telling us to respect to honor and obey those we are working for as if we are honoring, obeying, and working for Jesus. This is huge. So in the context of our culture, as an employee, do you treat your boss or your manager as you would Jesus? Do you speak about them to other people in the way that you expect Jesus to talk about them, or the way that you would talk about Jesus, is there an honor and a respect that you're showing? And Paul is coming and saying, as this is a primary responsibility that we have as we come in, it's, it's deeper than the golden rule. Do unto others as you would do for Jesus. 
not that you would have them do for you. Do unto others as you would have them do for Jesus. So then Paul comes down and says, all right, let's continue this in verse 6. He speaks to the slave's motivation for doing. Some slave's motivation for doing. You heard him say earlier, it's like, don't just work for them while they're in front of you. You work for them actually while they're away as if you're serving Jesus, right? In Paul's time, slaves were notorious for being lazy and lying to get their way, only working hard when their master is in sight. Don't, obviously, you would never do that. Can you think of anybody else you've ever worked with in your day and age who works a lot harder when the boss is around? Right, I remember talking to my dad one time, and we're fishing like on a Friday. He's like, yeah, yeah, I probably need to go ahead and call in because I guarantee the guys are doing absolutely nothing at the boat shop, right? He said, I like to show up when, when, I'm, when I'm off sometimes. I like to show up just in the middle of, just in the middle of, just in the middle of the day to see what they're doing because I'm like, oh, it's like, oh my God, <laughs> right? The whole type of thing. It's like when I was in college and I found my parents were coming, I'm like, clean up the house, right? Let's pretend it's always been clean, okay? It's like that whole mentality. So this is what Paul's getting at here. Like we can't do that. We can't do that. He shifts that. He's telling them to work hard all the time because their true master, the Lord Jesus, what he's always watching. He's always aware. The implication is clear for us. Everything that we do at all times is to be done as well as possible to honor Jesus. Everything we do at all times do our best to honor him. I serve my master. I serve my employer. I do my job as if my employer is Jesus and everything I do is for him. Whether I, and here's the thing, whether I'm seen or unseen, that's the point. That's the nature of integrity, isn't it? That the things that I do when I'm seen or is the same scale of things that I do when I'm unseen. I'll never forget, I was in seminary, one of my professors named Steve Harper, a great guy. He told the story of St. Francis of Assisi, who was walking one time. This stuck with me, right? He said, he was walking one time with a disciple of his, and the disciple was going on ahead, and he said, Francis kept on stopping. He'd be walking, and I've told the story before probably, but he said he's walking, and every time he would, he'd take a few steps, and he'd pick up a rock and he'd throw it off. And he'd walk a few more steps and pick up a stick and throw it off. He said, it was just laborious. He's just walking so slowly, and finally the disciple looks and says, Francis, you, you know, you can either just walk around or, or walk over those sticks and stones. You don't have to get rid of them. He goes, oh, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for every single person who may come after me so they don't stumble on them. That's the idea. That everything I'm doing is not to be seen. It's because of it's the unseen. I'm doing it before the Lord. I'm doing it to honor those who are around me. I'm doing it to honor those who may never, ever see anything that I'm doing because I love them as Christ loved them. It's the nature of the seen and unseen. And then Paul skips down and comes down in 7, 7 and 8 and makes it clear that everything we do, everything we do has Jesus in mind. Everything we do has Jesus in mind. We are called to serve others wholeheartedly, it says, as if you were serving Jesus, right? And the idea is with eternity in mind, knowing that, that there's this place when, when we get to heaven, and I don't know what it's going to look like exactly, but that there's some level of connection point in history of time with Jesus where the things that we are done, in a sense, are quote-unquote paid back. You know what I mean? Like There's these things that we do that Jesus is aware of. These things that we're doing that ultimately we do to honor him and to please him in the way that we treat others. And so he's calling them in the moment, right, in, the, in every human that we serve, to recognize you're actually serving Jesus, no matter how menial the task seems. 
No matter how menial it seems, no matter how small your job seems, if viewed properly, even if it seems like, quote-unquote, slave labor, we must do it with the final judgment in mind. We do it with eternity in mind. Everything that we do, big and small, listen, it has kingdom implications. Everything we do has eternity in mind. Everything we do has an audience of like, watch me, Jesus, watch this. Everything that we do. If you've ever read Matthew 25, it's one of those stories you're like, oh, it's really hard to read. These people, these Christians had gone around and they had been serving those that were in need. And, and, and then Jesus blesses them and invites them into the kingdom. And, and they look at him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Like that's humbling. And all of our actions, big and small, like they were completely unaware. I love that. They were complicit. Did you read that? Did you see that with me? They were completely unaware. The things they were doing, they just thought they were helping people, coming alongside them. But they're literally in doing it for the least. They're actually doing it for Jesus. This is Paul's heartbeat here. Everything we do is for Jesus on behalf of Jesus and has him in mind. The end result for us is clear. Our jobs, our role in the culture, they do not determine who we are or our identity. We live in, to, and for Christ in all that we do. Moreover, our value, our identity, we, they don't derive from our circumstances, the work that we do, the menial tasks we think that we're doing. But our identity and our values come from Jesus. Hey, you're my dad. I just want to please you, not to earn something because I just love you and want to bring pleasure to you. And whether it's like literally making millions or just picking up stones and throwing them off of a path. Like, do you measure levels of importance in the things that you do? Do you deem some people more important than others and you're willing to do more for them? If you're honest, that's really hard in the business world, isn't it? You have the haves and the have-nots. You need to be friends with the haves so you can get something from them. There's really no kingdom in that, sorry. And so in the idea of a, an example in the, our world is a teacher. Think about a teacher, right? So in the context, think about a teacher in the context of these three things. is The motivation for what they're doing, right? The idea of everything they do has Jesus in mind. And the context also of the respecting and fearing and obeying Jesus and the context of their employer-employee relationship. So you have this teacher. And so they teach material, they give tests, and then they go home. Right, And everyone would agree that the teacher has fulfilled his or her contract. But in the context of the kingdom, is that really enough? Right? Is that really enough? In the context of this, what does it look like for them to, to everything they do, to do it with Jesus in mind? Every relationship they're in is to honor Jesus in everything that they're doing. How are they treating their employer? 
How are they treating the students in the context of this Christ-centered idea of what Paul is imagining? Everyone would agree that teachers would, who look like Christ would see their responsibility increase to nurturing children's souls. Right? They would see the need to care for the well-being of each child and make sure everything's going okay. Being aware how they're doing in their classroom to make sure that they're not living rejected, but they're living accepted and investing into the future of that child, getting there on time to honor their employer, to be honorable in relationship with every other teacher, and to not talk about some other teacher who sits in their pod who's kind of annoying and kind of enjoying the, the banter around them, right? To never speak negatively about the school, just to speak negatively, but to literally live in the context of honoring, respecting, and fearing all parts of what they're doing as if they're honoring, fearing, and respecting Jesus, loving on and giving the best of their energy to every child who is in need. So then, as employees, we're working this way, right, serving others. And so for us, what does that look like? How are we doing in the context of this? Then Paul shifts gears a little bit, right, and he speaks to the, to the shifted role of the master or the employer, and this is obviously really huge because in verse 9, Paul gives the value and rights to slaves, which is huge. And then he gives a written responsibility to the masters for the first time in the household codes. For the very, very first time, right, Paul tells masters and employers that they have a responsibility to treat their slaves or employees in the same way that they would treat Jesus. In the same way that they would want Jesus to treat them, Right. Masters, historically speaking, had used fear and threats to motivate their slaves to action. But this is not an option anymore. They would need to treat them with respect, with the fear of the Lord, as if they were speaking and talking to and treating the Lord. This is huge. For masters, listen, they'd always been given a clear path to do as they pleased in dealing with their employees. There were no boundaries set up for them. They would have viewed themselves as being more important at least. And at most, they would view and deem themselves as being superior and their actions would have followed suit. But Paul is crushing this belief and conviction because of the gospel of Jesus. Slaves and masters are now equal in God's eyes and he is demanding that masters slash employers take this same view. For us, it's, I want you to hear this. If we're going to put it back in our context, it's really easy for us to look down on people who live in a lower state of life. Like we may not have slaves in our context, right? But we are around people every day who have jobs that we deem beneath us and people we wouldn't associate with. And either with our mouth or with our thoughts, we dehumanize them and consider ourselves superior. I'll never forget when I was, I used to do street ministry in the street of Athens all the, every Friday night when I was in college, actually in college and post-college. And, and so I, w- I had these friends who lived on the streets, and, and they, we'd be kind of walking, and I would, whichever one I'd find, we'd hang out and talk. And so it was this one night, I got there fairly early that night, probably around 7 or 8 o'clock, and 
And I'm walking around, I found my friend Ronald. Ronald was an African-American man somewhere, probably in his early 30s, uh, who had been homeless. He had been in in and out of jail and just really, really struggling with, like, just self-defeatism and depression, right? And so we'd get together and we'd hang out and we'd we'd get coffee together. We'd just walk the streets together and we'd just talk and hang out. And so this one night, if you know Athens, we're right across the street from the Arches, right there on Broad, just just down the same street as the grill is on. And so we're sitting on one of these planters, large planters. Right. And, and this like one of those like, um, you know, grandma mobiles from back in the day, like one of those like big Buicks would pull up. Right. As a husband and wife in the car. And, and I'll never forget this lady. She's probably in her mid to late 60s. She's, she's in the passenger seat and through drive up and she does this. And she looks over and her eyes go like this as if someone has just scared her to death. And she just goes like this and she hits the lock on the door, goes like this, leans kind of into her husband's looks forward like this. Do you know who she saw? She saw me and she saw Ronald. And I looked at him and he just went. And I said, man, does that happen to you all the time? He goes, all the time. And I said, man, on behalf of every ignorant white person in the world, I want to apologize for locking the door. Because Ronald, man, he was a friend of mine. I was offended. But you know the crazy thing was that actually brought me a level of joy? She first saw me. She identified me as being a homeless man who was living with Ronald. And that was the greatest gift I'd ever received. Thank you for, deep, for, make, for connecting me with Ronald. I'd rather hang out, hang out with him than you. I'll be honest. I think Jesus would too. I'm just saying. How do we dehumanize? How do we do that with people? How do we look based them on socioeconomic? How do we do that with skin color? How do we do those things? Are we okay with that? Do we just see it as part of who we are? It's this culture. It's like, well, you know, I mean, they're scary, whoever it may be. What do, how do we handle that? The eyes of Jesus is that he looks and, like, you, you recognize if he came back to earth, he's probably not going to go hang out at the country club with all the buddies. This is not how he works. He's not hanging out at Governor's Town Club. He probably wouldn't live in Seven Hills or Bentwater. He'd probably find the underprivileged, and he would go give his life to them. If you read the Bible, that's who we hung out with primarily. The Pharisees would come visit him. He would go hang out with those who were greatest need. The message of Paul to masters is the message to us today. Jesus is our audience and how we treat the how we deem the least is actually how we're treating Jesus. How do we handle people? We in the context of our culture, are we afraid that they're going to move in, whoever they may be, socioeconomically, lower housing, skin color? What is it for us? Paul is coming and challenging it in the moment. The message teaches us there is no hierarchy among human beings. End of story. I told you this last week of Hiley Stone, my good friend, right? I wasn't better than him. I wasn't the up here and him down here. It's so great you brought him the gospel, Steve. You're such a good minister of Jesus. No, I was a friend of Hiley who needed what I had, so I gave it to him. You've heard the phrase, pastor, just one beggar who's leading other people to the, to the bread, right? One beggar in need of bread, leading all the other beggars to bread. That's all, that's all I was doing. I was helping him. 
The message teaches there's no hierarchy. We have all have roles and tasks, but they do not render people more or less valuable. We are all equal in God's eyes. Arrogance and feeling. Listen, arrogance and feelings of inferiority are out of place. There's no favoritism in the kingdom of God. With God as our model, we are to act as he acts. That's the beauty of it. Because how we do that becomes a message to the entire world of who Jesus is. Do you hear that? How you act will let people know in your work who Jesus is. They will let you, they will, how you act towards your neighbors will let people know who Jesus is. Who is Jesus in you? And what are you modeling? And Paul's challenging them in the moment. No hierarchy. All equal. There's no us in them. It's just the people of God. Slaves and masters, you're all equal. You have one Lord. And the message is really clear. We are all slaves to God. We're all equal because Scripture says we are all slaves to God. He is Lord. We submit all that we have to Him. Slave or master, employer or employee. Everything we do is for Him. Every person we relate to, it's as if we are relating to Jesus. And every job we do, we're ultimately doing it for Him. Jesus is our audience. Jesus, watch me. Watch me. I just want to show, I just want to show you. Just watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to watch your face. Can't wait to watch. We do everything we do for him, every relationship we have, and we take seriously that this is the order. Listen, we have to take this serious. Let's pray. Father, I praise you that as we embrace this, God, work that we done, we do will be done with care. We won't just do things to get by. We don't do things just to impress superiors. But we do for the purpose of honoring Jesus. And God, I praise you that in turn we will be a blessing to people. That, Father, people will be drawn to us. The things that they say to describe us, well, those people love us. I feel like one of them. God, there's no greater honor than to sit with someone who and culture has been deemed inferior, and they look at us and say, you know what, I, I think you're a friend. That's what you were, Jesus. Looked at the woman at the well who said, I shouldn't be talking to you. You're Jewish and you're a man. And Jesus said, there's no walls here, because I want to share the good news of who I am with you. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to live with no walls. I pray, Father, you'd help us to to be a great expression of Jesus everywhere that we go. I pray, Father, real simply that we would... I just pray, Jesus, make this make sense, Lord, make sense in my mind. I, I just pray that you would make us people who stop, because God, we just walk away from sin so powerfully, stop having to say, well, I'm just a sinful being. Because we actually stop giving into sin, giving into the lies of the enemy, giving into the lies of culture, He said, no, no, we are fully redeemed, empowered by Jesus to be Jesus wherever we go. And if you can can imitate me as I imitate Christ to lead you to a Christ-likeness. Father, today I praise you for Ephesians 1 through 3.
This is only possible because your spirit is inside of us and has empowered us to do imaginably more than we could ever dream or imagine in the context of our lives. Jesus, we lean into you today. We need your strength. We can't do this, but we now see the model of who we're called to be and who you're empowering us to be. God, it's your dream. It's your intention. It's your hope, God.